Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to Critical Witness. Uh, We're here for another conversation, our second one of the month, we generally aim for two a month. As before, I'm here with Dan and we've got our guest, Randall Rouser, uh, all the way from Canada tonight. So it's great to have him with us. We're going to be going straight into the topic, really, uh, talking about his new book, Jesus Loves the Canaanites. Uh, we might have some time for conv- uh, questions, so do please ask them in the chat if you want to. Um, otherwise, just listen along and uh, hope you enjoy the conversation that we're going to have with Randall. So without any further ado or talk, Randall, it's great to have you on the show. Great to be on the show. Thanks. For <laughs> Thanks for coming. Um, so just to kick us off, uh, for those who aren't aware of who you are, um, can you give us a little sort of five minute summary of who you are and uh, why you're a Christian? Sure. Well, wow. Um, yeah, the last bit. Uh, okay, so I, I grew up in a Christian home in Canada, did my schooling, ended up doing a PhD actually at King's College London in, in uh, London, England, uh, in systematic theology, and ended up then becoming a professor where I've been teaching in Edmonton, Canada for the last 18 years at a seminary here in theology and apologetics and worldview are my main teaching areas. I've written 14 books. So the most recent one, Jesus Loves Canaanites, is my 14th now. Uh, in terms of why I'm a Christian, I mean, that's, uh, in one sense, I'd say, well, there's 14 books kind of exploring that whole question. Um, it's, I would say the one thing for, for me is I approach the defense, the apologetic defense of Christianity uh, from what we call a reformed epistemological perspective. Now, that's a perspective that, argues for the propriety, the justification, the warrant of coming to hold Christian beliefs as properly basic, apart from arguments or evidence. Uh, At the same time, that also involves responding to objections. So there is sort of a rational uh, obligation from the Christian individual or the Christian belief community to respond to objections as they arise. And so that's really uh, where the the center of my focus in terms of apologetics has been is, is in developing a fulsome nuanced Christian worldview, which uh, can then also respond to objections to that worldview, such as biblical violence that we find in the Bible. And so that's, of course, the topic of this book. Uh, one more thing I'll just say is in terms of like, like if I were to just say, well, I'm a Christian because of this argument and this argument, um, not only would that be kind of uh, reductionistic, because it's just so much more complex than that, it wouldn't convey the richness of why I'm a Christian. I think it was uh, G.K. Chesterton who said that when asked to defend civilization um, to the person who's a skeptic of civilization, what you end up doing is you just say, well, there's electric lights and there's indoor plumbing and there's all these things. But the value of civilization is so much more than any one of those things that you could identify. And so for me, it's very much the same with my Christian belief. It's a holistic intellectually and emotionally and spiritually satisfying way of interpreting reality and being in the world. Um, 
And then so I, I live in that way and I seek to respond to objections to it as they arise, as we do have with biblical violence. Amazing. Uh, that's a pretty neat summary. Uh, I like that. I like that it's you have managed to do a succinct reason for why you're a Christian while saying that you're not really able to. <laughs> right, so well done. Well done. Um, good stuff. So I know I've, I've actually uh, neither of us have yet read your book Um Dan, for ideological reasons, because it's on Kindle at the moment. Um, me, because I'm reading your other book, uh, Is the Atheist My Neighbour? Um, so it'd be great just to have a, a little synopsis of um, how your book is is unique in this area. As and There's Paul Copan's Is God a More Monster? And there's a few other... Um, there's quite a few people who've dealt in this topic. So I've just been wondering, what, what have you brought um to this and um without giving us the whole book obviously we'd, we'd like to read it yeah definitely there has there is a sizable literature on this topic and it has really grown in the last 20 years really since 9 11 9 11 uh, so of course the the assault on the world trade center in new york by terrorists that was a real catalyst for people in the west particularly thinking about the relationship between religious ideology and violence uh, of course, that was just, uh, in a sense, it coming to North America, but it, it has been a problem on an ongoing sense for many other parts of the world. But as a result, so there were Christians who began talking about this in the early 2000s. And then the people who really, in some respect, were the most significant in terms of catalysts for it were the new atheists, like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, who really argued forcefully for, as they saw it, a link between religion and violence or Christianity and the Bible and violence. And they really highlighted aspects of the Bible that are uh, violent. So there are a lot of different Christian authors that have contributed to this conversation. You mentioned Paul Copan, uh, another one of the most significant ones. Um, uh, well, let's see, there's uh, Eric, uh, Eric um, Siebert and Greg Boyd uh, is another one. And I interact with both of them as well as Copan in the book. So how's my book different? Well, uh, one thing is that I really focus on, I mean, many of these people, they come from the perspective of being biblical scholars or theologians or philosophers or something else. Uh, so I come to it primarily from the focus of moral epistemology. Uh, I believe that um, one neglected aspect of the whole conversation is what we can know about the nature of reality through our God-given moral intuitions. So in the book, I develop a model of thinking uh, reflecting on our moral intuitions through concrete reflection on particular scenarios, thought experiments, uh, and also particular encounters with reality. So, for example, I talk about the degree to which the encounter with people who are being killed by the state really informs the way one thinks about capital punishment. Um, the way that uh, people in the, the discussion over the pro-choice versus pro-life question uh, the pro-life side has often wanted people to focus on what it means to kill a human fetus developing within the womb in utero as a way to concretely come to terms with the moral implications of that. Uh, and what I do is something on the same scale, I mean, so, sorry, the same principle, but on the scale of genocide. So I want to give a test case in this book. I'm not just going to deal with biblical violence writ large. I'm going to focus on genocide as it occurs in the Canaanite conquest of Deuteronomy and Joshua. And my model is to say, we need to think concretely about what is entailed by genocide. 
And I do that by developing a close analog with the Rwandan genocide of 1994 and arguing that as we think concretely about what genocide meant in terms of Rwanda in 1994, we can recognize that this is an intrinsically evil action, one that God would not command. And I go into length for a couple hundred pages on that very question. So I mean, so I've been doing interviews in the last month, and you'll inevitably get the comment of people who listen to my five-minute discussion and say that I'm just dealing with my reflexive emotions or something. Um, and I mean, that's fair enough, but that's not really giving due cause or care to 200 pages of careful moral reflection, right? So so that's really the centerpiece of the book. The other big piece of the book is then I go through and I divide all the major responses to the issue of the Canaanite conquest in terms of four major views. I call them the genocide apologists. And those are people that just, whether or not they recognize the concept of genocide, uh, they they do take a view that this happened historically and that it does meet what we have today as the contemporary definition of genocide. So I call them the genocide apologists. And then you have people like Paul Copen who take a view that I call the just war theorists, where they say, well, if we read this text with adequate nuance, we can show that it's actually closer to a just war rather than a genocide. And I critique both of those views. I, I don't think either one of those views, frankly, is defensible. Um, and then the final two views are what I call the spiritualizers, and they try to find some deeper spiritual meaning within the story of the Canaanite conquest. And then there are also people that I call the providential errantists, and they are people that say there is moral errancy or um, moral mistakes present within the Bible, and this is a good example of that. People falsely believe that God wanted them to eradicate the Canaanites. But the point with the moral errancy view is that God providentially included those errant moral perspectives within the text for the formative purposes for which he revealed the text. So I go through those four views and I argue that the third and fourth views, the spiritualizers and the providential errantists are the defensible views. And the first two, the genocide apologists and the just war theorists are not defensible views. Cool. Um Dan, any points of sort of clarification on that? Um, yeah, I mean, just know what you mean in terms of how you use your your intuition or um, analogical imagination, something like John Spohn, Michael. Um, like, how 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 does that um, play a part in how you interpret those in those those particular sort of problematic passages as someone? Because I can think of you know I can I can think of several um, you know examples of where uh, you know, intuition can be flawed. Uh, you know, number of ways. It doesn't, it doesn't feel just you know, not a totally relevant example, but it doesn't feel like the planet I'm on at the moment is going around a thousand miles an hour, uh, and, and yet, yet we are. Once I have further information, so my my intuition is is mistaken because uh, it feels like we're still, but we're not. Um, and I could I could think of other. Perhaps I'm trying to think of a more relevant example, but but you know, intuition you know itself can can be flawed. So I'd be interesting to know, uh, yeah, a little bit more about that. Yeah, great question. Uh, okay, let's begin with this. Uh, first of all, I can give you certainly more relevant examples. I mean, that's a fine example. What is it? What you gave is a good example of the fact that sense perception can be flawed, right? Our perception that we're we're not moving. We, in fact, are hurtling through space and we're hurtling around the surface of the Earth. The flat, the fact that the Earth is a sphere rather than flat, uh, those are cases where that shows that our sense perception is fallible. Now, that's uh, a good launching point for a general observation. 
all of our epistemic faculties or our doxastic processes, the means by which we form beliefs are fallible. So that's sort of a genuine, a general, general truism. Uh, so that's also true of our moral perceptual faculties. They, they are fallible. We can make errors on them. In fact, that's one of the reasons why there is such a field as, dis, as ethical discourse. People debate ethics in part because they have different moral intuitions. I mentioned abortion a minute ago. Well, you have some people like Judith Jarvis Thompson that are convinced through their intuitive reflection that um, the, the mother is not morally required to carry this fetus to term, that she can withdraw her body's life support from the fetus. Other people find that to be fundamentally incongruent with their intuitions. So that's pretty clear, right? We do have our moral intuitions can be in conflict and can be an error as well. What we do then is we try to reason and reflect very carefully on the moral intuitions we do have. We vet them. And if after a careful process of vetting, we are still persuaded uh, by the weight the, of these moral deliverances such as they come to us, then we are justified certainly in retaining them even against defeaters to them or objections to them. So uh, in the book, I, I give, for example, I mentioned capital punishment. So I give the example of Leo Tolstoy. He describes in the 19th century witnessing a public beheading in England, I believe it was. And he says when he saw the blade drop down with a whoosh and then slice through the head and then he heard the head fall into the basket that was beneath it with a dull thump. He said he knew with every ounce of his being that this could never be justified by any theory. Now, that is an example where he's then reasoning out from his intuitive moral reflection. Now, could I, moral reflection could be an error, but that's a reasonable starting point. Could yeah. I just raise it's so sorry, I don't mean sort of jumping in there. So, but again, all right, so let's imagine Leo Tol Tolstoy there, but let's let's change the scenario slightly so that um, it's not something, um, you know, uh, perhaps it's the case the person actually being killed is someone who murdered a close friend or a close loved one. That that change of the scenario changes would probably change his intuition in the sense that he probably wouldn't have the same perception he had um, given the closest his relationship. And I can imagine, again, I'm happy to, uh, I'm sure you'll explore this more, but in the terms of if you were an ancient Israelite dealing with uh, living the nature of being in the ancient Near East, um, dealing regularly with war and, and, and violence and, and, and things like that would you know, I can I can imagine that changing the context such that um, that driving out or engaging in in, in violence and conquest uh, might be understood to be more justifiable than perhaps me looking back two thousand you know three four thousand years uh, you know later. Okay, so yeah, I, um, so let's let's talk about first of all. So you gave well, what if the person was a personal relative? They might have a different perception on the the execution. Yeah, they might. Um, now, what that means is is not like that doesn't necessarily provide them with a more reliable assessment of the morality of of beheading. It it may skew their their perception. So. Um, the, 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 there's no neutral stance with respect to the moral assessment of an act like beheading another person. Uh, what we have is we have Tolstoy as quote unquote the neutral observer. And then we also have the anguished wife who's watching the murder of her husband getting his comeuppance. And they're both may have different assessments of that event. And so for each one of us, we're just going to have to weigh as best as we can through empathetic reasoning and the 
their each of their perspectives and then come up with what we think is the best solution or explanation. So, so that's the first thing. Second thing I would say is, is that we, we have to also, when we do this kind of empathetic reasoning, we have to distinguish between moral justification for an act and, and also a sort of moral sympathy for the actor. So for example, Psalm 137, right? So this is that infamous Psalm where the psalmist says, blessed is he who takes the babies and dashes them against the rocks. And that's been called, you know, the most heinous statement ever in scripture or in, in all literature. Sometimes people kind of go off on a flourish there. It is pretty terrible, right? Imagine thing, blessed is the person who can take a baby and smash it against the rocks. Okay, so... Um, I don't think that that can be morally justified as a response to your oppressor, that you want to kill their baby. But there is definitely room, important, crucial space for sympathetic moral understanding of the person who says that. So in the book, actually, I give an example on that specific case of a woman in Canada, a mother, who was bereaved of her three children because of a drunk driver. And she said to the drunk driver at his sentencing in court, I wish you could know what it is like to have every child that you've ever loved die and know what I'm experiencing. I don't think that her statement is justified as a general moral desire. I think it is perfectly understandable from the perspective of sympathetic moral reasoning that we can understand why she says it. And so when it comes to the ancient Israelite and, and the way that they were responding to the Canaanites and so on, I think there's a lot of room for sympathetic moral understanding there. We can identify with them because we too have suffered our various grievances, but that doesn't mean we necessarily justify the way that they responded. So, go on, go on. Oh no, sorry, no, I was, I was looking, trying to look up, I couldn't remember which psalm it was. <laughs> you just quoted, I got distracted. Um, yeah, on just, I guess where we're taking this is to really digging into the, the, the passage. So I'd be interested in, in your connection on, as you look at Rwanda, Rwanda's done in a very Christian country, the Rwandan genocide. So I guess in some ways linked to the people of God going against what we intuitively see as a command to love your neighbor. Uh, I'd be interested in, in how, that those texts in Joshua can be spiritualized. I guess I haven't really engaged with those. The kind of engagements I've, I've engaged with are like the just war, like uh, the conquests were when you see cities, they're just military outposts, very few <laughs> women and children, which kind of make the command to kill women and children a little bit redundant. Um, so there are issues in, in those sorts of ideas of militarizing everything and it's a just war um so it's never set fully comfortable with me but then the idea of spiritualizing the texts feels like i'm not taking the authority of scripture <laughs> very seriously um and and i guess even more so when you start talking about there's this errancy within the scripture so i'd be interested in just kind of hashing out a little bit what you mean by this errancy i haven't really engaged with that before and i guess if your background's reformed, which kind of mine is in, in some instances, um, that, that kind of idea of errancy within an errant, inerrant text must throw up some curveballs for people. So I'm just wondering, what, what, what do you mean? Um, that You said that's defensible as a providential errantist. What kind of... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so um, 
there's a lot in there that, that I'd Sorry. like to respond to. But, but let me just focus in on, on the question of understanding the providential errantist perspective. So I give five reading principles when it comes to, to reading the Bible, general hermeneutical principles that I think are, are simple, but I think also intuitive and very valuable when it comes to reading. So one of them is the two authors principle. And the two authors principle is that for every text of scripture, there are ultimately two authors. There's a divine author and there's a human author. And what the divine author says in a text may be different than what the human author says in the text. Uh, and if it is, then to the extent where there's conflict between them, the divine author's voice trumps and provides the context for understanding the human author's voice. So that the divine author may be doing something different than the human author is doing. So we were just talking, for example, about Psalm 137. That's the psalm with dashing their babies against the rocks. Um, that's one of many cursing psalms or imprecatory psalms that one finds in the psalms. I think approximately one-fifth of the psalms include curses on enemies, including the beloved Psalm 23, prepare a table before them in the before me in the presence of my enemies. That's not a, hey, I want to sit down and have dinner with my enemies. That's, I want to be vindicated while my enemies look on. Uh, and it's not a particularly noble wish, to be honest. So, But there's a lot of many worse things. Like, uh, the psalmist saying he wants to bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked, for example. May their backs be bent and their children be childless. May their names be blotted out of the book of life. The psalmist says uh, that God laughs at the coming destruction of the wicked. Okay, so let's just take that statement, for example. The psalmist says God laughs at the coming destruction of the wicked. I've already said that we, we want to read with sympathy to identify why they say what they say. And so we want to understand why a psalmist might, why a person might speak with that kind of anger. It doesn't mean that I say, yes, God indeed does laugh at the coming destruction of the wicked, because I actually, on this one, I side with Ezekiel 18.23, that God does not take delight in the destruction of anyone, and that God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And if that is the perspective that I've assumed then, then even if the psalmist actually thinks that in that moment, I believe that God appropriated those words for a different purpose than what the psalmist intended them for. And so what God is doing through that text is different than what the psalmist was intending to do in that text. So the psalmist is in error that, in fact, God doesn't laugh at the coming destruction of the wicked, but God sovereignly has taken that and now put it into his text, and it takes on a new meaning as we read it through Christ. Because we find the psalmist is a foil, is a contrast for Jesus who told us to love our enemies and showed us that, in fact, if you want to know what God is like, look to me. And I'm saying God loves everybody. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So that what we have is a richly textured three-dimensional document that gives us a full record of human experience, including errors, including fallibility. But mm -hmm. God has providentially included those perspectives to challenge and lead us on to deeper growth in Christ. That's a, that's a really, really interesting way to look at it. And I, I guess... As I said, I haven't really thought through that too much because I've always looked at those imprecatory psalms as they're, they're always um, relinquishing those emotions, being honest before God and, and sort of laying those things in his hands, including the death of the wicked, including the destruction, including vengeance and all those sort of things that um, being honest with God and wrestling with him is very healthy. And that's the kind of thing that you're meant to read as the Psalms, not as a command to go and do that, but to, as a, a command, almost to like, if you feel this way, that's okay, but pour it out before God rather than acting on it. Um, so it's quite interesting to see that as a, uh, yeah, the foil for Christ. I quite, quite like that. Um, I have to 
ponder that a little bit more. But um, yeah, no, that's just a really helpful way of looking at it. Um, and just to sort of dig in a little bit more on that um, spiritualizing side of it, I, I guess if you're, def- you're saying these two are defensible, would you take a more nuanced view that, that you're kind of sitting in the bit middle of spiritualizing and providential errancy or you kind yeah. of... They're they're not first of all they're not mutually exclusive. So you can you can recognize that each one of these is providing part of a cumulative case argument to understand what's going on. Um, now I don't give like I don't give the golden key. This is to under, how to understand what exactly what's going on here. For me, like this book is about removing objections in the same way that a person can write a book, let's say about Genesis one and two or one to three, and say, look, this is fully consistent with old earth creationism with evolution with a historical or a non-historical atom described understood with a particular set of nuance you can just open up all those options without settling any any one of those and say so don't let a particular view of the age of the earth or the origin of human beings or life on earth be a stumbling block for you and that's really the focus here for me and so in terms of these views so i divide the spiritualizing view into two different camps the I think I call them the ancient spiritualizers and then the modern ones. And the ancient ones are people like Origen or Gregory of Nyssa in the early church who looked, uh, tended to kind of develop this allegorical spiritual meaning. So, for example, the Canaanites become sinful impulses that we need to eradicate from the soul. And Joshua is read as a story of the sanctification of the individual in Christ. And those those narratives, that way of interpreting strikes us is very curious today because we're creatures of the Reformation. Uh, and so from the Reformation period on, there was a growing skepticism about the fourfold approaches to reading scripture. But for more than a thousand years, those are very widespread, widely embraced views. And one thing that they did, whatever their limitations, was they tended to remove the co-option of a text like Joshua for violent use. So, for example, Douglas Earl has shown that Joshua, uh, I don't know, there are few, if any, appeals to Joshua to justify the uh, Crusades against the Muslims in the Near East. And that the reason for that is because Joshua was so commonly read through the spiritualizing prism uh, in the High Middle Ages. So instead, what people did is they went to the Book of Maccabees in order to justify attacking the Muslims and slaughtering them en masse. Now, whatever you think then of the adequacy of origin spiritualizing, I think personally, that was a pretty good outcome because I would rather read the text in, in a fanciful spiritualized way, but nonetheless an errant way and be spared from being complicit in a horror like genocide, which leads me actually to the, the deeper driving force of behind my reading principles. I said there's five of them. The last two principles are to... Um, Read as you're modeling yourself on Christ to become like Christ, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. And to the end of that, always read so as to increase the love of God and neighbor. So if you read the text in such a way that you end up being alienated from God and or you end up dehumanizing or objectifying your neighbor, you are reading the text contrary to the formative purposes for which God revealed it. Uh, And our neighbor, as Jesus shows us, are all the people from the outgroups that we are otherwise inclined to otherize, to dehumanize, and to hate. So Jesus tells us whether it's, you know, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, 
whether it's the tax collector, whether it's the Samaritan, the person with leprosy, we are to reach out, embrace, and love these people. Uh, and that certainly includes the Canaanites as well, which Jesus shows us in the Gospels when he heals the child of the Canaanite woman and, in fact, ennobles her in that exchange. If you recall, she says, but Lord, Rabbi, it is, is it not right to at least give the scraps to the, to the, to the dogs? And Jesus responds not like, hey, you showed me up, you Canaanite. No, he's like, you got it, which shows a complete reversal of the way the Canaanites were viewed. Right? So he's elevating the Canaanite just like he elevates Samaritans. So where, where is um, a common theme in sort of um, maybe more modern genocide or um, tends to be this, this process of dehumanization. So obviously once you say, I'd say the same with, goes with, with something like abortion as well, like we discussed earlier, is that you first dehumanize and that almost makes it permissible to treat uh, that group of in, that group or those individuals in a way that wouldn't be permissible if they were part of the uh, of the human community, um, and so you see that in, in the things we talked about Rwandan genocide, about cockroaches, or if you look at um, you know the, the Nazis, you're, you know referring to Jews as pigs and disabled people as useless eaters and things like that, and it's not obvious to me that when you look through the Old Testament um, that, that the Canaanites are dehumanized or denigrated um, in, in an obvious way and that and that seems to me uh, it does it's, it does seem relevant in a way because I think um, they're, they're not they're never stripped of their humanity um, not not taking away the reality of what occurred but that that that, that does seem to be a sort of missing link that it, it doesn't have in common with with other examples that we might more modern examples. Okay, well, I'll just read from Deuteronomy 7. I just pulled it up. I haven't memorized it. But this is one of the passages that I look at in the book. Um, so starting from halfway through verse 2, Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will, they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will break out against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, burn their idols in the fire. Okay, so what we have there is going on in that text is there's, and Deuteronomy 20 verses 10 to 18 is the other text, the other primary one, is it's describing the Canaanites as an intrinsic threat upon the spiritual well-being of Israel. That if you allow these people to exist, if you coexist with them, in any proximity in the land, that they will be a corrupting influence on you and will lead you away from fidelity to Yahweh. Now, what that means is that people like Gleason Archer, who I quote in the book, a well-known biblical scholar, says that the Canaanites are like a cancer. And what you do with cancer is you cut it out. And I know that, yes, you, you mentioned the Nazis a moment ago. That is very much like the way that Hitler described Jews as a racial typhoid that has to be eradicated. So um, the way that Christians have commonly viewed the Canaanites is that they were an intrinsic threat upon the integral well-being of the Israelites. If they were not completely eradicated, they would have corrupted the Israelites just like a disease. So in fact, I do think you have the basic elements here. If you read the text in that straightforward historical narrative way, you have the, the all the basics that are required for a genocide and the classic dehumanizing rhetoric of genocide. I mean, I guess an interesting sort of caveat would be that um, 
you know, there are, it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem, I think most people when they assume sort of a genocide is there's some sort of ethnic, um, the, the motivation is sort of ethnic, you know, they're a different ethnic group that's, that we, we want to sort of, um, you know, eradicate them. That doesn't, that doesn't seem self-evident in the sense that, you know, they are, you know, I, I guess a counter example would be the Gibeonites, um, who uh, who they do make peace with in, in the land of Canaan. Um, and, and there are sort of individual examples and things as well in, in terms of the, the fact that I, that I might be wrong, but like Deuteronomy 20 talks about, uh, you know, making pe- you know, uh, peace treaties and things in warfare that actually the offer of peace would have been something that that may have that may have been made um but there was no sort of attempt to uh, well, no obvious attempt other than the gibeonites um that that was ever taken up um so it was it's not that it was um inevitable um perhaps and that, that seems that does seem different in in, in sort of some you know so it, yeah in deuteronomy 20 there are near nations and and far nations. The far nations are given two options. So the one option is surrender and become our slaves, or we'll kill all of your men and then make the women and children our slaves. So, I mean, just apply that to any geopolitical dispute today. We would not think of that as a particularly benevolent offering, right? Like imagine if like Russia said to England, you know, we're going to invade you. You can become our slaves or we'll massacre all the men and then you'll become our slaves. So, but that's the actually the, the nice option because the option for the near tribes that are in the land is, is not that, it's leave alive nothing that breathes. So that is in fact genocide in the starkest sense. Now, the other thing that I would mention is not only are the Canaanites commonly viewed as a cancer, but they are also often viewed as less than humans or different than human. So there's this common idea that gets bandied about that the Canaanites were perhaps descendants of the Nephilim, that they were not fully human. And so for that reason, it's okay to eradicate this population, which again goes into what David Livingston Smith in his book, Less Than Human, goes through the history of of dehumanizing populations in acts like genocide and other war crimes in order to justify their eradication. And this argument that this group can be eradicated because they're not really fully human you see that time and again. And so it's not surprising that you see it popping up in defenses of the Kenite genocide as well. Hi there. This is Phil Dunkarf. Thank you so much for listening to the Critical Witness podcast. If you like what you hear, please do subscribe, share the episode and write a review. It will help others find us. And if you really like what you hear and want us to grow, please do consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash critical witness. Enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, I've not I've not seen that. I mean, that's a particularly sort of horrid um, example. But I guess, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a relativist, but but certainly the, the historic the, the context of, of the time does play a part. I mean, uh, in terms of how how different tribes and stuff would engage in terms of um, you know offerings of peace and warfare and and uh, you know what happens to the men women children etc. I mean I guess uh, an example would be um, in, in terms of how the context matters is, is like capital punishment as well. What do you do with uh, with murderers in your midst? You know you're a tribe. You've got someone who's a or a rapist or a murderer or uh, you know. Some, something uh, you know, on, 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 on par with that. Well, 
how how do you you can't do you leave them within the community you don't have prisons uh, you don't have any means of of uh, of long term uh, restitution um and so you can see how in that particular context you know if you do have a particular uh, you know a deviant of of a certain nature who's going to be harmful to the community that you can understand how in that context um capital punishment might be um uh, understandable you know, i can be sympathetic to that view in that in that in that context um it, could that not also be the case in terms of warfare as well i mean uh, it, it's not like they were uh you know a benevolent group nearby i mean this is um you know from my understanding you know it was you know often kill or be killed you know you can't just sit there and be a, a pacifist otherwise you know they'd be, they wouldn't be they wouldn't be around today so it wasn't really an option to be a pacifist in, in Okay. Uh, first of all, I would say we can identify what we can call mitigating circumstances. So, for example, if if you said, well, these soldiers, these prisoners of war, they were all killed, but what were we going to do, right? There wasn't any other option. And you can understand context in which that could be a mitigating circumstance, perhaps. Uh, I would be reluctant to say that in our context today, that could remove nonetheless the, the stain of massacring prisoners of war, we would call that a moral atrocity. And I'm certainly not a moral relativist. So I think that if the slaughtering of prisoners of war is a moral atrocity today, then there may be mitigating circumstances, but it still would have been a moral atrocity in the ancient Near East, even if we can understand, as I already said, uh, this sort of mitigating sympathetic reasons that we can understand why they did it. It doesn't nonetheless justify it. But even having said that, that's really not what we're talking about here. We're, we're talking ultimately about the targeting of women. We're talking about the targeting of children. We're talking about the targeting of infants. We're talking ultimately about the destruction of a genos, Greek for race, kind, ethnicity, religious group. That was the target to eliminate the Canaanites as an identity in the world, not just to kill individuals. And that's what genocide is. That's why it's considered a uniquely offensive war crime. It's seeking to destroy identities, which is certainly what is going on in Joshua. And I, I mean, I don't think that, um, I think Copan is singularly unsuccessful. Uh, and his co-author, Matt Flanagan, in one of their books, Did God Really Command Genocide? I think he's singularly unsuccessful in, in arguing that it's a just war. And I could go into that at length, but I mean, I'll just, leave, I'll leave it there and just throw it back to you, whatever you want to. Follow up on, uh, yeah. I mean, um, my understanding again. I'm, I'm not an expert in this area, I, and just anything I'm raising, I don't necessarily mean that I actually believe that. I'm just trying to like to mm. ask, ask questions and things that have come into my head. I've got into trouble with that previously. Uh, <laughs> so my, my understanding that the the three fortresses that are actually destroyed in Canaan. Uh, well, the three places, cities that are destroyed in Canaan. So uh, Jericho, Ai, and and Hez, uh, Hazor um, were were would have been military fortresses you know these were not places uh where you'd expect you know the the you know your missus to be raising the kids um so uh, you know the fact also when you when you when you you marry that with the fact that clearly canaanites continue to exist uh for some for some time uh afterwards uh that clearly wasn't um if if the object was uh you know, not merely to drive out, but to exterminate them as a group. Um, it, it, one, it wasn't successful. And I guess, secondly, as I said, that, that these actually were um, military targets uh, and, and not places where you would have found women, children, etc. Okay, so uh, Joshua 8, 
of verse 25, 12,000 men, this is I right here, 12,000 men and women fell that day, all the people. So it quite specifically specifies there that there were women. I mean, and of course, men and women, that's just a catchment for civilians within the city. So I'm familiar with, with Copan. Of course, he gets this from Richard Hess, this idea that uh, E-year, we can think of this term as referring to a fortress, a military citadel. Uh, but even if you say, okay, maybe this is primarily a, mi a military fortress or citadel, uh, you still have civilians living within it. I mean, obviously Rahab and her family were civilians. There would have been families. I give actually a specific example. I say of, of Fort Hood, a military base in Texas in the United States, which has a population of about 40,000 people, including something like hundreds and hundreds of children and families living on base. Um, and that would have been very similar in the ancient Near East. So uh, you would have had families, you would have had merchants and non-military people all and in, interacting and living within that space. Now, the other thing, or, and so then if you come in anyway with the purpose of driving out and destroying Canaanite cultural identity and you massacre everybody inside these fortresses, that doesn't exempt it from being genocide. Now, the other thing, of course, that Copan and Flanagan say is, well, the primary language there was to drive them out of the land. And it's only secondary that it says to kill all of the people within the cities. Okay, but what happens to people uh, that are being driven out of the land if they get caught, right? Well, what happens is they're going to be killed. I mean, they're not going to be taken prisoners because it's already been stipulated to destroy every living thing. So even if you say, well, that's hyperbolic war rhetoric, you still, unless you want to argue from silence that there's zero evidence of this, that the Israelites benevolently took them as, as prisoners, in fact, it's fundamentally contrary to the text, then what would have happened is they would have been eradicated. And so ask yourself this, okay, who actually would fail to outrun the Israelite armies from the countryside? Would it be the rich and powerful? No. It would be the handicapped. It would be the elderly. It would be small children that got separated from their families. It would be the weakest and most vulnerable members of the population that would be eventually caught by the Israelites and slaughtered by them while the rest of the Canaanite population flees. Uh, that, is a, that is to me a war crime, and that is certainly constitutive of genocide. And of course, it's also constitutive of ethnic cleansing, although Copan and Flanagan argue unpersuasively that we should call it moral cleansing. Hmm. Uh, that kind of leads me to the, the, one of the points I've, I've read of, of sort of moral cleansing is pointing to the reason for this conquest is that the the sin of the Canaanites hasn't or hasn't reached its fullness. Um, I can't remember the Amorites, Genesis fifteen sixteen. There you go. The, so it's waiting for the the sin to reach a, a climax so that God can send the Israelites in to perform the judgment of God. Um, how how much do you engage with that and i know again it's one of those things that i've kind of gone okay I, I it's a time and place a single command for a single location and entity but it's yeah how, how do you handle that <laughs> yeah so i mean you have to ask of course this this question um is that in principle the kind of justification that we consider viable for genocide because if you're going to accept genocide can be morally justified in one context, then in principle, it can be justified. So then you have to look at others. So if you're going to say, well, if a particular group has certain historic sins for which that group is culpable, 
then it is morally possible to destroy, commit genocide on that group. Okay, well then let's talk about the United States and the, the history of uh, slavery in the United States. Um, is that sufficiently egregious that it would be morally justifiable now, 150 years after the ending of slavery, to go in and commit genocide on the population of the United States because of past sins of, of a slavery within the United States and the slave trade? But wasn't wasn't the point that it was ongoing? So it's not like that 400 years, they did something 400 years ago and then 400 years later, it's like, let's go back, it's payback time. Um, it's okay. the, it's the, in principle, it's the fact that whatever they, was ongoing. And I, yeah, I know, um, I can't remember, is it Clay Jones? He's written quite a lot about this in terms of um, out, outlining the sort of um, uh, more, you know, to sort of despicable, despicable sort of moral practices that were sort of ongoing in Canaan at that point. Yeah, so Clay Jones, I argue, or I engage with his views uh, quite extensively actually, because he does make this argument that the United States is no better than Canaan. So um, in essence, Clay Jones, in an essay published in Philosophia Christi, ends up taking the position that in principle, I mean, this is the implication of his view. In principle, it would be morally justified to eradicate the population of the United States, not only as you, as because of what I talked about, past sins, but also because of ongoing sins. So un, under... Uh, um, under uh, child sacrifice, he gives the equivalent of abortion today. So, so that's a sin. Another one, he cites Metallica song lyrics uh, as evidence for the fact that the U.S. is open to bestiality. And he also cites uh, the, themat the, the zoophilic themes, themes of a play as evidence that the United States is open to bestiality. And so that's part of his cumulative case to justify the eradication of the population of the United States. I actually think he's not doing himself any favors. I think he's showing the absurdity of his position that if ever you have a reductio ad absurdum for, for your arguments about ancient Canaan, it certainly is the case if you end up arguing for the justification of eradicating 300 million Americans today. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've not seen him argue that. I'm left to do a bit of reading. I'm sure that's probably, but, but he, he's not, so he, you're saying that he thinks it's more on principle, it's morally justifiable to do that on the on the basis of his argument. In his essay, he argues, first of all, at length about how sinful and wicked the Canaanites were. And I will say that that is not a view, to my understanding, I'm not a biblical scholar, but that's not a view widely shared among biblical scholars and archaeologists, that in their view, the common view is that there's no evidence that Canaanites were any worse than any other ancient peoples. But they do get dehumanized and objectified by people, I think, like Clay Jones, because they want to justify their reading of the Bible. When it, which, again, I'm just not to go on a tangent, but I think that shows there's a danger there that's fundamentally counterintuitive from the call to love and humanize our neighbors rather than the opposite. Okay, so that's his argument. He's arguing that the Canaanites were so horrible. And then in the last part of his essay, he then says, hey, what about the United States? And he goes through these five catalog sins, including bestiality including, as I said, child sacrifice. And he says, the United States is really no better than Canaan. Now he doesn't come out and say, therefore we can commit genocide of the United States, but it's left hanging there. I and mean, he's just made the equation. It just flows naturally. At least that if God were to give the command tomorrow, then yes, it would be morally justified. And you know, there are places like you can read the book of Revelation, Revelation 17, 18, you can read passages like that as talking about a future cosmic warfare, which could be interpreted as genocidal in scope. So when you have that and you put all this together, I think you're dealing with a real powder keg 
for the way that you could potentially provide people with scriptural warrants to engage in moral atrocities. Yeah, but that that would, I guess that would presume um, an, an odd reading in the text in itself. I mean, I think even people, so let's say, even if you could say you, you know, you defend a, a, you know, a, a genocide apologist, what you, what you would term someone like Copan, um, that you, you're still able to read the text as something that is, um, it's it's both describing and 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 the, the prescription is limited to that particular context. So you'd have to you'd have to. It's not a necessary normal reading of the text in terms of, you know to look at that text and think, okay, well, who are who are the Canaanites in my life in in our context, and then apply that to them? Because you'd have to you know that it's not obvious that that's a, a a legitimate reading of the text in itself, even if you 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 did accept that. Um, you know, that that is what God commanded. Well, it's not obvious that it's legitimate, but we have a long history of Christians doing precisely that. So you have Oliver Cromwell appealing to those texts, the texts of Canaan, to talk about uh, the, the Irish as being Amalek. You have the same rhetoric the Puritans use talking about uh, the indigenous Indians of, of the United States as being Amalek and justifying genocidal actions against them. You have a lot of cases of this kind of violence being justified rhetorically in history. So but, th but that's by that spiritualizing, though. That's by spiritualizing the text, isn't it? So if you, if you, no, if no, you, no, if... that's by historicizing it. That's by treating it as historical. That you have a past historical precedent that we can now use to justify future actions as well. Yeah, because I've always seen. I, I, my understanding is, you know, if you if you're looking at the text and saying, right, who are who are the Amorites today, or who are the Canaanites? It, it, yeah, it's not. It, I've always understood that to be uh, an, an out. That that seems like more of a natural outworking of spiritualizing the text rather than one of reading it literally and thinking, well, the fact is God has not commanded. Uh, this is not a command that the church has been given to uh, to kill the the equivalent of the Canaanites in our context. No, it, it, it's it's the opposite because, as I said, for people who spiritualize the text like Origen. They say the Canaanites are symbolic representation of sinful impulses within the individual. So there actually is a conversation about whether Origen ever believed any of these events actually happened or not. Um, and I'm not an Origen specialist to really be able to opine on that. But from what I've read of Origen and his sermons, he has a, a collection of sermons on, on uh, Joshua. I tend to think that he didn't think it actually ever happened. And so that where it functions is as an allegory for the life of the soul. So if you have it as an allegory for the life of the soul, there's just zero justification for now historicizing it and applying it to actual people groups. But if you believe this is a historical record of how God has acted in the past, then you are in principle open to the possibility that God would in fact command it in the future. And that is indeed what you find when you have the text after the Reformation being historicized again, you then have people like Oliver Cromwell and the Puritans who come along and say, hey, well, then who are the Amaleks, the Amalekites in our day? And then they use it to justify atrocities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there's cases that there's been, you know, there's always, you can always find examples of people making terrible jumps from scripture. Um, I'm just saying that it's not, it doesn't seem self, uh, self an, an obvious reading of the text to jump from something that we, you know, we are not Israelite. We're not ancient Israel, but it's not. Uh, we don't. We wouldn't understand the rest of the. Um, uh, well, well, most people wouldn't read the text uh, 
you'd hope you'd hope they don't read the text like that. <laughs> I mean, I've never met anyone who does. No, not even online in that case. Right. Uh, is there anyone actually arguing? On, it sounds like Clay Jones comes close to some extent. He just kind of leaves it hanging. But I, I haven't engaged with anyone who sort of justify violence in that sense. I don't know how you could when you're you're following Jesus, but I guess it, it has happened historically. I guess kind of wrestling with that one. <laughs> it's a bit of an odd one. Um, much much depends on what you think it means to follow Jesus. So True. Uh, there are if you just you just have to look through history there. I mean Philip Jenkins in his book, I think it's called Laying Down the Sword or Lay Down the Sword, he gives many examples from history and uh, uh the Puritans and Cromwell are just two of them of Christians who have appealed to these kinds of texts to justify violence against other people. Um, I, uh, you did refer, Dan, uh, to, to Copan as a genocide apologist, but to, again, to clarify, I say that he's a just war theorist. Oh, but sorry. That, yeah. yeah, no, no, it's fine. Sorry. But his views end up, in my view, being really collapsing back into something like genocide apologetics. But certainly he doesn't embrace that, and he wants to distance himself from it. There are other contemporary Christians who have taken a, a stronger view, like Eugene Merrill, where they're, they're more okay with embracing this as, in fact, genocide because of their own strong view of what divine command theory ethics looks like. Yeah. What would you, uh, just, just quick, I know we've got to kind of round up because you haven't got much time left, but um, like someone like John Walton would say that, uh, you know, the point of Israel's invasion and, and destruction, whatever the... Uh, particular limits or extent of that was, was it was less about killing and more about uh, dismantling the community of the Canaanites and everything that they stood for. Um, and I guess that kind of squares with De Deuteronomy 9.5 uh, and not being influenced by uh, by their culture and their practices. Well, I, I will say that I've, I've read the book he co-authored, I believe, with his son. I, I have a review of it on my blog, but I'll just say that your description actually just now is genocidal in nature, ironically, because uh, when you say, well, it's not about killing, it's about dismantling, which is really, I think, a euphemism for destroying a culture. I, again, I quoted earlier from, from Deuteronomy 7. So if you have uh, one group comes into another group and cuts down and destroys and burns all of their religious and cultural identifying marks, that is general. that is what we call genocide. That's an attempt to destroy the cultural identity of the people. So if you read the United Nations Declaration on the Crime of Genocide, which was adopted, I think it was originally 1948, um, the, the first example of genocide is killing members of the group. But that's only the first. And there are all sorts of other ways that you can destroy a cultural identity, including uh, transferring members of the group to another group and then trying to reprogram them. So, which is what Canada did to the First Nations people here in something called the 60s Scoop. The government actually took Indigenous children away from their families and put them in state-run houses where they were going to give them good Canadian culture. That's really functionally genocide. Um, and then even if you like sterilized a population, let's say unbeknownst to them, they might never be aware of it. But if you did that to the end of destroying their identity as a people by preventing them from having births, that would be genocide as well. So the, the concept of genocide, I think, would apply to to what Walton's describing there. So so what would have, um, I guess it was interesting, I mean, the United Nations, obviously, several, you know, thousands of years later. Um, so what, what, what have people thought at the time? So let's say you're, um, you know, 
back then would would surrounding groups have seen this as something that was uh, gen would they, would they have understood it as genocide? Genocide is a modern concept. It was the term was coined by Raphael Lemkin in 1944. Uh, he was a survivor of World War II. He was Jewish himself, ethnically Jewish and Polish. And he, as a lawyer, he sought for the recognition of the concept of genocide in international law. So it was adopted, as I said, in 1948 at the United Nations. So it's anachronistic to apply the term to earlier periods, of course. That's what that, I mean, yeah. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it's inappropriate because the United States, for example, just recognized that uh, Turkey engaged in a genocide in 1915. Um, and of course, uh, World War II, the crimes against the Jews were retroactively called a genocide because the concept of genocide didn't exist in international law until after World War II. It still certainly qualifies by meeting the, de the definition of genocide. So there's nothing inappropriate about calling events of the past genocidal. But, but what... I guess when I get like what on your understanding of what genocide is wouldn't have made any uh, any that wasn't all ancient warfare in a sense genocidal like what what because it seems that I don't know there seems to be conflating like what 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 makes what makes ancient warfare not genocide by definition by anachronistically sort of applying it to, to ancient warfare because it seems like I, that yeah. was actually the goal of a lot of ancient warfare if you read they wanted to destroy the culture yeah. and you know, have their land. A lot of ancient Near Eastern warfare was genocidal. Well, we would qualify as genocidal. Um, so it's, it's sometimes called total war. Uh, and yes, that was very much the practice back then. And so you could say, well, that's a mitigating circumstance that everybody was doing it. But of course, a mitigating circumstance, again, doesn't morally justify it unless we become moral relativists. Um, so uh, with that in mind, I'll just throw out an, an interesting idea and explain why I think it's inadequate. So uh, Christopher Wright, he proposed in one of his books uh, along the lines of accommodation. So the accommodation is this idea where, where God meets us in our limited understanding, and then he tries to bring us on to a deeper understanding. Um, and so he gives an example that divorce was God's accommodation in the Torah, but Jesus says ultimately that was never God's purpose, that there would be this thing called divorce. So it was an accommodation. Uh, and then Christopher Wright says, well, maybe we can think of this total war that was practiced in the ancient Near East as a, an accommodation as well. That because everybody was doing it, that was just the standard mode of warfare in the ancient Near East, that Yahweh likewise commanded his people to adopt that by accommodating to it and allowing them to engage in the same kind of warfare that was being undertaken by others. And one thing I just point out is there are all sorts of standard practices of war that I think we right away say, no, God couldn't accommodate to that. So a couple of them is rape, uh, not only rape of defeated civilians, but also rape of defeated soldiers is a very common practice throughout the history of warfare. You might even call it an institution. Another one is cannibalism. Cannibalism has been commonly practiced as a way to further dehumanize the subject population and the soldiers of the subject population by eating them. So then you want to consider this as a thought experiment. Could God accommodate to the warfare practices of other times by commanding the Israelites or some other people he had chosen to engage in acts of war rape and war cannibalism? And I'm inclined to think he certainly could not. 
But then I will say that genocide is not worse, or, or that cannibalism and, and rape are not worse than genocide. They're just all equally opprobrious crimes against humanity. If he couldn't accommodate the first two, he can't accommodate the second and wouldn't accommodate the second either. Hmm. Okay. No, and there's, there's quite interesting, um, I'm kind of, kind of left at the moment going, I've no idea where I sit on this. <laughs> I mean, the way that I currently harmonize things at the moment is knowing that Canaanite line isn't wiped out. And we see that through Rahab, through then Boaz and Ruth, and then into Jesus's genealogy in that they appear in the genealogy and they are part of the line of the Messiah. So there's, there's something about all nations from Genesis 12 all the way through, even through the conquest into Jesus. So, but neither the Rwandans. They're still Rwandans today, and we'd still sure. look at, we'd still look at that and say, well, that was genocide, even though that there are still uh, Tutsi, you know, uh, Tutsis, and I can't remember and, the name. Yeah, and there are still Jews, right? But there yeah. is also a Jewish genocide. Yeah, so I'm not not in the sense. Yeah, so I'm not in the sense that that lets it off. I've seen that as a defense. Um, like for for me, this whole aspect of genocide is just kind of left hanging in there, and I guess. Um, Digital notice on on the chat has actually asked a pretty good question. So, uh, why would God include something so difficult, dangerous to interpret? Dangerous in the sense that people have based further atrocities off of it. Um, why why do we have stuff like this in the Bible? Do you, do you have a sort of a theory on that? <laughs> An answer on that one? Uh, well, that's chapter 12. Nice, read the book. I like that. Yeah. No, but uh, so in, in chapter 12, I do, I, I lay it out in a couple different ways. Uh, I quote from uh, John Loftus, actually, who I wrote a book with. Uh, and I also quote from Justin Schieber, who I wrote a, bo a book with, who both raise a similar kind of overlapping question. And the question is is the degree of ambiguity and moral, uh, the degree of moral ambiguity within the text morally defensible. Could God justify as an author, divine author, allowing that kind of moral ambiguity that can allow for seemingly justified reason, reasoning and interpretation of the text, which justifies atrocities? Um, or or is, is it just over the threshold that it's not morally justifiable? Now, that is an example, a subset of the problem of evil, right? Is Here, it's, it's the problem of moral ambiguity within the text, uh, and it's the general problem of evil in the world. Um, and so there's a similar sort of defense in each case, which in its essence is that, well, insofar as God has morally sufficient reasons to allow evil, such as some greater good, then he's justified in doing so. And so likewise, the argument would be that God could have morally sufficient reasons to allow the degree of moral ambiguity that exists in the text. And so I kind of lay out how one would make that case. It seems to me that there's simply no way to argue definitively for or against that because we just do not have that quote-unquote God's eye point of view to let us know all that God is intending to do with the text and all that it in fact does and how he balances the ratio of good to evil or hedons to dolors or however you want to categorize that with respect to his intentions for the text. But for me, that just means that if I already have a justification or a ground to accept this text as God's inspired word, then to me, the moral ambiguity does not present an insuperable difficulty. But I recognize that for other people, it may, right? That this is just the case where different rational people can look at it and with different intuitive starting points can come to different conclusions. 
Good. I like you. Uh, it's interesting, isn't this? Because I think um, I, I've always heard, listen to two extremes. So it's either Dawkins, Harris, Loftus, uh, etc. God's a genocidal maniac. The other side is, um, you know, largely I think summarised as uh, the Canaanites were really bad, and God, it. God, they deserved it. Um, which I've, I and I'm obviously clearly uncomfortable with, with both both extremes, uh, but never really um, been confronted by it by a view that that is somewhat close to the you know is somewhat more closer to to the to the middle. Well, uh, just taking a different a different view completely. So yeah, even I'm even I'm looking forward to uh, to reading your book even more now because yeah. um, I've get a bit of a taster. So um, yeah, I look forward to having a read and trying to. You know, trying to establish uh, a, a more sort of concrete view my, myself, one that I'm sort of more you know, morally understand, uh, comfortable with as well. Although I know I sh I'm not the arbiter uh, of, uh, <laughs> of what God does, um, but um, I, I'm just aware, Phil, that I know. Um, yeah, we're, Randy, we're you said you had an hour, and we're just kind of a little bit over that. So, um, can we ask one more question? Sure. Just um, it's a question we ask all our guests. Just wondering what we should read, what we should listen to, or what what are you listening to at the moment um, with regards to resources around this topic, or just an in general, what should people uh, engage with uh, in, in understanding the Bible better? Uh, well, so obviously, apart from my book, which goes without saying, please plug uh, it. Plug as many of your books yeah. as you like, which are the top three. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, I, I would. I mean, this one, uh, Jesus Loves Canaanites, and also the one that I wrote last year, uh, Conversations with My Inner Atheist, also fits in with this. But in terms of other perspectives, I think Greg Boyd's work is very important on this, Crucifixion of the Warrior God. I critique him a fair bit within my book, but he's done the single most comprehensive proposal, and it's a 1,500-page work. Uh, so I think that's really essential reading. I think that uh, Copan and Flanagan's work, uh, does Did God Really Command Genocide and Copan's Has Got a Moral Monster, are both at the top of their game for the approach that they pursue, the just war approach. Uh, I think that Eric Siebert has written a couple books, Disturbing Divine Behavior and the Violence of Scripture, that are very important. Kent Sparks has written on this. In terms of the contemporary spiritualizers, Douglas Earle has written a book called The Joshua Delusion and another more academic one, the title of which I forget at the moment, and uh, Jerome Creech, also from a contemporary spiritualizer's perspective, which we really didn't talk about uh, today. Mm, no, I didn't touch that one. Um, but there are, there, there's, there's a whole gamut of literature. The thing that I just want to say, and I, like, I, I hope that, I mean, on the one hand, I argue my view aggressively because I do think that um, if I'm right about this, then there is a sense where contemporary defenses of genocide are in some way like 19th century defenses of slavery, that they are just fundamentally getting Christianity and some of the hermeneutical and ethical implications and commitments of Christianity wrong, and that can have very harmful effects and we ought to fight them. So there is that part of me that wants to argue aggressively from my position, but at the end of the day, I simply want space for this position. Because there are too many people, I think, Dan, as you said, you've given this sort of dichotomy, that there are too many Christians who have ended up having crises of faith or leaving the faith altogether because they weren't given options between John Calvin and, uh, and uh, or 
Richard Dawkins, right? That there's there's seemingly nothing between the glory of God commanding a genocide and God's a moral monster. And there has to be space for other views. And um, so I'm certainly trying to argue for one of them. Yeah, I appreciate that. And just to say, that's partly why we've asked you to, to come on this conversation. Hopefully we'll, we'll be able to have a, an, another conversation on another topic. Just appreciate your sort of nuanced view on things and the way you engage with, with atheists and um, really enjoying your book on Is the Atheist My Neighbour? Just the way that historically Christians have spoken about atheists even uh, and your challenge to to treat them as our, our neighbour rather than dehumanising as, as many uh, have historically done or even recently have done so um yeah great anyone listening please do uh, buy any of randall's books follow him on twitter follow him uh you're, you're mostly on twitter aren't you you've got a website randallrouser.com as well yeah um yeah. and you're, you're now all over youtube with uh, your own channel so subscribe there <laughs> go and uh, engage with them there um dan anything else to say no, other than thank you. I look forward to I'll be ordering uh, another one of your books after we finished here. So, well, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I'll just say that you you guys pushed back, which I love. I love to have a little bit of engaged repartee. So, I mean, I, I also like the 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 interviews that are just sort of like going through a list of questions, but kind of really getting into the thick of it. That's an interesting and. And it's engaging and stimulating. So I really have appreciated and enjoyed the exchange. So thanks for having me. No worries. Thank you, man. There was one technical question, which maybe you can think about. Finding Truth, one of our, another channel is asking if you'd be open, though you spelled your name wrong, Santi, sort it out. Um, <laughs> be open to have a, a conversation with Clay Jones about this topic. I'll leave it. Sure. Yeah. There you go. Santi, if you're Thank watching, you. get, get on it. Um, message Randall on Twitter. He's active there. Cool. Um, Thanks. I'll, I'll close off here with a couple a couple of things. We don't actually have anyone uh, lined up yet confirmed. We have a couple of options um, that we're, we're discussing, but we will be next chatting with someone in June. Uh, we're trying to do a couple of these a month uh, just from general business and I moved house and stuff's happening with Dan as well. So we're kind of uh, a bit manic, both of us, but we'll be back in June. Follow us on Facebook, on Twitter and uh also subscribe to YouTube and you'll get notified when we're next on. Otherwise, uh, we do update our podcast. Uh, so if you just prefer listening rather than watching, then um, subscribe to SoundCloud or whatever podcast you use. And finally, just a big thank you to those who support us. Uh, we do this for fun. We love having these conversations, but we do have a Patreon page. Feel free to stick a couple quid in for, for that and we'll be very appreciative for it. But these will be happening anyway and uh any any money that goes above and beyond our costs we'll, we'll consider how we can put that to to better uses rather than our pockets so thank you for for your support uh those of you that do that we're very appreciative uh on that note thank you and we'll see you again very soon bye thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show if you like what you hear please do give us a subscribe on youtube or follow us on any of the social media out there and give us feedback get in touch let us know what you think if you really enjoyed the content and want to support it find us on patreon.com